I love that scene where they're like blowing up the bomb and he's like, what do we learn? They're like, we need to calculate a further distance from <laughs> the bomb. <laughs> Sunday scaries. Other thing, they're nice and slick. They fit, you know, well around your shoulders and stuff. It's a high quality shirt. It's a good print. Um, I can't recommend these shirts more. I, in fact, <laughs> if I could, I would buy all of them. And the stickers. I mean, gosh, those stickers are impeccable. <laughs> they're good stickers, man. They are. They're nice little like vinyl stickers. They uh, they do good. Um, but yeah, we're actually gonna throw up some. Uh, there's some fun advertising things that we're working on with some of the new sets that we have here at the house. Uh, so those will, those are forthcoming uh, and will be exciting, especially as we start printing new shirts too. There's a couple of different versions. We're gonna have a black on white print, which will be nice too, which is like just the skull. And then we're gonna have the OG logo shirt and then some other stuff. It'll be it'll be great. Um, but hey, it's uh, Sunday Scaries. It's a podcast about horror movies where each week we take the edge off by doing a deep dive into a particular movie and try to make connections between that movie and other movies within the genre. These are our Dead Air sessions where we discuss news and other topics related to the industry. I'm Travis, and I'm hanging out with Daniel out on the West Coast in sunny L.A. It is. It's sunny as all get out here. Everybody's complaining about how hot it is, but it's not as hot as Texas. I fucking I believe it is not, yeah, because it's, it's scorching over here. We're hitting another week of... Three post like three digit days, seven days in a row, and it's a it's it's a problem. It's scary, honestly. I'm a I'm a lifeguard right now, and one of my bosses asked me what it was like to like work back in Dallas, like guard like lifeguarding, being at the pool. And I was like, honestly, it was like a hundred plus degrees for sixty ish days total in the summertime, and it was an absolute nightmare. And I probably burned more often then than I do now. Um, but I am out in the sun all day long, so I've gotten like a really nice rosy tan. So when I come back to Dallas in what, probably the end of September, I'm going to have like blonde hair, super tan. <laughs> all I need is like bleach teeth, and then I'll be like the like classic Cal- You're Californian. You're the epitome of, of the L.A. Ken. You're Kenning. You're Kenning so hard all over the I place. Know. You are Adonis-like I... in your, your, your olive-skinned uh, majesty now. Um, but speaking of Ken, uh, <laughs> for a second. We, man, we've, we've both officially Barbenheimered. You were so on top of it. I got a text at literally, so our time, it was five o'clock in the afternoon or something. So that meant it was three o'clock for you and you had already seen both Oppenheimer and Barbie in a double feature in the span of five hours, six hours. Yeah, we did the, we ran the race. We started, we opt. We opened <laughs> at 9.30 in the morning at a 70-millimeter screening, and then we barbied, we barbied at 2. So there was like an hour break for a quick lunch. Um, and so Mary-Kate, myself, and a friend of mine went and did both back-to-back like that, um, which was like truly exactly how we thought it would be. You're a madman. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that is an interesting experience, doing the Oppenheimer before the Barbie, because I feel the stoic and just the unrelenting dense dialogue of that i don't know we'll talk about it here in a second but yeah we we barbied pretty hard that weekend too for it was kyra's birthday so we did a a big brunch with like 10 people all dressed up um we went out and then at 3 30 we had our barbie screening and with a group that movie man what a blast it uh it's it's awesome and then we kind of had a little party that evening and then went and saw i made probably the worst decision the theater experience i had for oppenheimer 
was maybe subpar, but the only IMAX screening that I could get tickets to left over on the weekend was an 11.30 screening at the North Park AMC. Yeah. So going into a three-hour movie at 11.30 was, uh, I don't know, man. It was was a ride. I was so wiped out from that whole weekend, too. I think I was, you know, I was doing my best to absorb everything that was happening in that movie, but I felt... I was in the headspace of of a beleaguered Killian Murphy Oppenheimer up for days, weeks working on the Manhattan Project. I feel I I, I associated with his character very well. Um, but as far as it, non-spoiler stuff goes, like I don't know, <laughs> it, it was a blast. I I truly yeah. I think that the order should be Oppenheimer and then Barbie. Uh, I I think don't that was know the wise managed to go the other way around. You did yeah. like the extreme version of it too. Yeah, because I feel the the lift in spirits and but poignancy of Barbie, I think, is is what you need. You need a dose of humanity after experiencing Oppenheimer, um, and that's what Barbie is. It's it's crazy. It's I, it did not disappoint. Like watching this movie with a large group was a blast. Like I said, uh, we laughed, we cried, we ate up some not so subtle Chevy commercial uh, in the middle of the movie. Uh, it's it's amazing. It was a great experience that I, I knew it was going to be fun and I knew it was going to be meta, but I didn't realize how emotionally impactful that movie was going to be. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a great scene where she, like, is in the real world and she just kind of looks around and absorbs, like, the entirety of the human experience, like, in Century City. Um, and for some reason, it's just this, like, classic, like, indie-style shot of just, like, seeing all the people all around and, like, having an absolute love and joy for the complexity of humanity. Um, and it's so funny for me, I explained it to like, like we saw Mary Kate's mom, we were trying to explain it to her because she was like, I don't think I'll see that. We're like, well, it's actually really funny. And also it's very heart. It's got a lot of heart. And then I tried to explain it and she was like, what? I thought this was like a toy movie. (laughs) It's yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's a Pinocchio story. Uh, Barbie wants to become a real person. And, uh, that's the, that's essentially the plot of the movie is discovering what that means and what it means to be a, a real human being. Um, and then on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, yeah, Killian Murphy as a, yeah, just gaunt, hollow-eyed Oppenheimer, who, who fucks, though? He fucks. Um, but we don't see, we don't see full Murphy Dong, unfortunately. Oppen Dong is not present in the movie. that was the The biggest disappointment you. of the weekend. <laughs> I texted you, like, oh, so Florence Pugh goes topless, but Killian Murphy's Dong is invisible the entire movie. Like, yeah. that's a... A crime. It's a crime, I say. Yeah, and there's also. It, it, I was also surprised at how jam packed they. Uh, I don't know. They were they were getting pretty indulgent with the number of uh, cameos in there too. Um, fucking Josh Peck showing up, and Josh Peck <laughs> is actually really good in that movie. He's yeah. I mean, between him and the Safdie brother, I was. I don't know. It, it was a pretty yeah. Good, and pretty good Dane DeHaan. Um, uh, yeah, the Safdie brother was one. I it took me forever to figure it out. I was like, I've seen that guy before. Mm-hmm. I love the Safety Brothers, though, D-Man. That's, uh... Yeah. yeah. They, it's funny to think they're actors, but they're also, like, really well-known directors in some yeah. ways. Yeah. No, I remember sure. someone explained... I read an article somewhere that, like, one of the joys of having so many celebrities do, like, cameo, like, kind of two or three line roles is that it's easier to remember the character because you just associate them with a celebrity. Yeah, it's. I think that's an, right. There's that's kind of a double edged sword, right? Because it can go one of two ways. Where it's uh, somebody can be. There are certain actors that are just too big for roles now. Where it's you know when you throw Matt Damon was an example of that playing Leslie Groves in this movie where he's doing a good job, but it's it's fucking Matt Damon. It's just it's hard to get past that. But um, or like when you put Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie, it's he's gonna be 
it's he he's distractingly famous at this point in time, right? Um, right. Whereas uh, up on the other end of the spectrum, though, I guess you have Robert Downey Jr. in there playing Louis Strauss, and that was actually a he very well just like kind of melded into that character. Uh, I him you as know Louis Strauss is amazing. This is the same article. Uh, I loved it because the way they phrased it made perfect sense. They kind of said like the fifteen year marketing campaign for Robert Downey Jr. is finally over, and now he can start acting. They were <laughs> yeah. like the, the the marketing campaign of playing Tony Stark for fifteen years is finally ended, and now it's time for Robert Downey Jr. to like stretch his wings a little bit and just actually do some. He's, he's aging good. aging beautifully into an elder statesman of the industry. He he is he's a great. He does have a lot of talent. He's a really really good actor, especially in in Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's yeah, it's interesting to see that. And part of it has to be too, though, right? I feel like somebody like Robert Downey Jr. has more money than God now, and so it's kind of he doesn't have to work ever again if he doesn't want to. But it's you know, yeah. he's obviously he's from on, on the behind the camera and the, on the back end producing and stuff. He's a man who loves film, and I'm sure the opportunity to do a movie like this and a role like that that is so integral to the movie is is probably something that you know. Those not, are the types of projects forget, maybe we'll see him in in the future. Not to forget that his wife, Susan Downey, uh, helped produce Gothica. Shout yep. out a former episode of ours. Go, go um, listen to Gothica to learn more about the construction. Yeah, the, the Dark Castle Entertainment and, and the great hijinks of the 2000s in, uh, in producing those movies. Gothica exactly. is, is a banger. And Robert Downey Jr. is amazing in that movie, too. Exactly. Um, so without spoiling anything, those are kind of like surface level takes on Barbie and Oppenheimer. Um, I don't want anybody uh, who has still not seen them yet to uh, to have stuff ruined for them. But if you have seen it and are okay with hearing spoilers, dude, there's some stuff in. I don't. I don't know if you even can spoil these movies. You, you know? said it's that about like, Barbie. Yeah. I don't think. Like, I truly don't think you can spoil that movie because everybody goes into it knowing what they want to get out of it, mm-hmm. and they get that. Like, obviously, like you know, the Ryan. Ryan, um, Ryan, Ryan Gosling stuff <laughs> is like obviously what half the audience is there for. Yeah, you know everybody and the Oppenheimer. We all know what Oppenheimer is about, but the like <laughs> so elements. We we know it. how the story ends. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. So it's just one of those things that's kind of funny because they seem like pretty like impervious films. They're yeah. they're perfect to market, perfect to release. So singular a vision on both directors' behalves, but also like impossible to. To not share. It's like something you want to tell all your friends about no matter what it right. was going to be. I don't know. Anyways, sorry. No, you're <laughs> Barbie right. Barbie was a blast. I, that, that was something that you said to me uh, as, cause, as you were texting me on that Friday morning last week. And I said, you know, no spoilers. And you said, I don't even know how to spoil Barbie. Yeah. Um, which is And fair. now that you've it's seen true. it, you agree, yeah. right? I agree. There are like, I mean, obviously, though, there are jokes that land. And if uh, you know what's coming in advance, then maybe right. that would kind of bum you out about those jokes. But yeah, dude, the uh, the fucking musical break for Ryan Gosling was it's it was La La Land levels of, of beautiful, crafted stage musical performance uh, breaking out with all of the different Ken's, Simu Lu. Uh, I forget, man, there was, there was so many, similar to Oppenheimer, there were a lot of really great cameos in this movie too. Um, but also the fact that, I don't know, I, there was a couple articles talking about, could you do this movie without Margot Robbie too? Um, because 
aside from playing the titular character she has she gets to stretch a little bit she plays a range of uh of roles in this movie it's not the uh being sort of the the emotional through line and the uh the the vessel through which we kind of rediscover humanity and and the the meaning of 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 your own mortality or and then also womanhood and like feminism and everything it it's interesting she gets to she really gets to emote in a in a movie about a plastic doll well, on a on a deeper level too. I mean, this movie wouldn't have happened without Margot Robbie specifically mm-hmm. because she was the attached producer. She mm-hmm. had the option on it and was trying to get this thing made for a while now um before some stars finally lined up, if I remember correctly. And so after oh that's what it was. Yeah, cuz I listened to the president of films at Mattel talk about it and said that like Margot was the one behind this to start. And Margot Robbie, I guess after a while, had suggested Greta Gerwig. She's like, what if we got mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig to do this? Which, of course, like, Mattel is, has nothing going on. They're like, uh, sure, but does she even want to do a Barbie movie? And when they called her up, they were like, oh, fuck yeah. She She's, like, super <laughs> stoked about this idea. Which is awesome. It's like, how do these things come together the, to make this happen? It, it, the whole thing was just a, I don't know, a spectacle of filmmaking um, on the back end, too. But, dude, I, also, it's just... The, that, that meta bit at the towards the end of the movie when they talk about, if you're trying to drive home the point that it's okay to look like a normal person, Margot Robbie right. is not the right actor for this role. And oh, 100%. To, yeah, emphasized by the final scenes of the movie when they're doing they're kind they're in the void, right? They're like in the Matrix and she's talking to um, the Ruth, the inventor of Barbie uh, and just the, the camera work in that is something, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Hoyt and Hoytema in a second, I guess, but like the, the close-ups of Margot Robbie's lips and just the absolute landscape texture of seeing her like a, a tear roll down her cheek is i don't know there was some very profound and then set to the montage of of home video uh sort of cuts uh, uh, shots and cuts or whatever and against uh billy eilish eilish's original track for that movie um that song now every time it pops up on social media or anything is just so it's so heart-wrenching it's a gut-wrenching soundtrack uh yeah I think yeah awesome. yeah I mean, and to be fair to them, I it's it's this, everyone's kind of saying how like this movie is just a miracle of marketing. Is like the campaign for this movie has technically been at least two years in the making. So imagine being you know the the marketing team at Warner Brothers and finally having your movie come out where you're like, I don't have to work on this, but like, holy crap, what a what a long running campaign. They mm-hmm. were saying they knew when they were shooting down in Santa Monica, like over on the when they do all the uh, rollerblading stuff. They were like, we knew that photos of their costumes were going to leak. And so right. we didn't try to hide the set. We didn't try that hard to like keep it from people because we wanted to leak one or two set photos of like pretty costumes and like give people a little bit of an expectation. Yeah. And it's good. I mean, it, yeah, it, it hits. It's awesome. Um, this other thing about like, so I remember when we were talking about leading up to Oppenheimer, right? There was this idea that uh, there were elements of the movie that Nolan himself was saying kind of leaned into the horror genre a little bit as well. And I think after seeing it, you see you, the moments uh, here that I made notes of that we talked about, right? Where it's a, uh, it's there's some of those those shots and the 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 sound design directly after Oppenheimer finds you know we hear news of the of the the dropping of the first bomb on Hiroshima and the sort of climactic moment Oppenheimer realizing the gravity of, of what he's done and the ramifications of it for humanity and the world. And they do that thing where it's the, there's, they have the screams that are just in the background against flash cuts of, you know, a scorched body. And it's, it is briefly horrific. It's yeah. uh, it was pretty There's like jarring. a moment where he like steps into like a rib cage. Yeah. 
Um, um, it, which is so interesting too, because it juxtaposes the like raw fervor with which the crowd is like approaching the idea that they've officially won the war. Mm-hmm. Like Oppenheimer has to give the news to all the people um, at their camp. They're like, "Oh, uh, you know, we we dropped the bomb." And there's like two versions of it, right? Is the one in his head, which he's kind of like talking it out, where he's realizing like the true horror of what's happened, and then the actual speech he gives, where he kind of is like. You know, they're luckily we only had two bombs or something. And, you know, everybody's like cheering and screaming because they're so happy, like the war is over. But he's thinking about this the sheer lives lost and the absolute like brutality of dropping a nuclear bomb, an atomic bomb like that. Um, And like as he's walking away, you know, like the faces are melting and people Mm -hmm. are like smiling as it happens. So it's like just very, very disconcerting. It's like, it's it's almost like watch. It's almost like Lynchian in those moments. Like it gets, it gets to a point where it's so uh, yeah. disparate in in tone um, that you're shoving these two things together. That it's, it is, it's, it's, it's unsettling and jarring. I think those, you know, leading up to this movie uh, through podcasts and other media and shit, we consumed, you know, thirteen hours of Manhattan Project history pod and other stuff, and so kind of get reading into the background and and getting regaining an appreciation for you know that moment in history and having that internalized as you watch this movie which was not history light i mean that is the one thing like this movie is dense it's uh there's a lot of talking in in oppenheimer which is yeah yeah for three hours uh <laughs> and centering there's... around the hearings of yeah. you know his trial and then also the confirmation hearing for lewis strauss um it's a very politically dialogue heavy movie um how do you feel about the way they did the whole... This is something that always kind of, like, strikes me in a movie. Whenever it's, you know, like, problem-solving or science in movies, it's really difficult to sort of cinematically communicate the process of, you know, discovering something or... Like, I, the, the first thing that comes to mind is the um, the uh, uh, Stephen Hawking movie with Eddie Redmayne. Uh, oh, The Theory of Everything? Yeah, theory of everything, where it's the idea that, you know, a scientist looking into a coffee cup and having the aha epiphany moment, which is rarely how science like actually works. Like usually it's a it's a it's a very, you know, burdensome process of brute force and mathematics. But doing it in a way uh, in this movie, it's done through, you know, some strong montages that are strung together where he's basically doing like a training montage, uh, discovering new science and learning quantum physics and stuff you know it's like comical to me but the first third of this movie i thought reminded me of sunshine i was like this is this is sunshine i'm watching sunshine (laughs) i mean it's like it's it's a comically similar in aesthetic and like characters like obviously like it's got killian murphy as the lead who's a scientist on a mission that uses you know like atomic bombs but they do like all these heavy cutaways like kind of rapid cuts to um almost like microscopic or subatomic level uh like vision in some mm-hmm. instances and just seeing like you know the the idea of a subatomic world kind of haunting J Robert Oppenheimer and while he's in university thinking about like how do we how do we get to this how do we reach this level right um which is it was gorgeous to see and and definitely like made every like it, it improved that first third because it is it's just the the seri- the first third is just Robert Oppenheimer getting to the status where he becomes you know in charge of the Manhattan Project and so there is there's like he goes to multiple universities across you know Europe speaks several languages 
uh, and almost poisons a professor at one point. It was it's just like a, all kinds of nuts. It's like a suit up montage of yeah. him gaining all of his special abilities and powers and stuff, right? Um, it is making, yeah. making all his favorite friends. Yeah, there was. Uh, I think it was. Uh, it might have been like the New York Times review or one of them talked about how part of that plays like him, like a heist movie, like him gathering his squad for one last yeah. big heist or whatever. And that's when we get all the cameos from like Remy Malek shows up for one scene or something, right? And yeah, you get all those awesome cameos from everybody. But it's uh, it's funny. Yeah, there there was some like playfulness in the way that it was filmed that way. But I also. Um, Going back, there's there. It, I do think it's interesting that they they didn't lean fully into the horror of the actual uh, right. bombs dropping. Right, I think that was definitely in in that New York Times article. They talk about how it kind of feels like Nolan's ethical sort of threshold of of not wanting to broach that like portray that subject in a ex- exploitative way. I guess um, yeah, you know, to his credit, uh, because that is something that you know, like I said, in consuming a lot of Manhattan Project media leading up to this movie. I wondered how far they were going to go with that. Are we going to see, you know, because also the idea that there's not existing footage of, of the wreckage or the, you know, the the effects or whatever. But then, you know, sort of what are you doing creatively there to, to sort of manifest that? And what does that yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah, I like the Truffaut quote that you pulled out about, about war films just being inherently uh, propagandistic um, because that is one of the things people kind of take for granted is like any movie that shows war has to have like some kind of glory to it um, and render it uh, is a, you know, Truffaut writes the war films, even pacifist ones uh, willingly or not glorify war and render it in some way attractive. Um, and th- that was like, it's a tough quote to think about, but it makes a lot of sense is like, if you're going to make a movie about war, you know, it's impossible to make, it's almost impossible to make a movie about war where there isn't a, at least one good side and like one good reason you that know? or even in through by the nature of the medium right in filmmaking the purpose of doing filmmaking is to create moving images and imagery that is interesting and attractive to look at right i mean just right. like by by its you know at, at its most base level so even in the process of doing that you know it, to, to actually show the true horrors of war in their visceral right. form is not something that anybody should experience. That's not some like that's that's that was the trouble with you know the the brief period of time in history where we we had it during the Vietnam War. It caused a lot of problems for culture and society as as a whole because of of us trying to come to grips in terms with our Amer- our identity, which is kind of also like as as you know a country and Americans and stuff. Um, and it's something that I think is interesting about that element of this movie where it's like. That was the thing that Nolan was holding in his hand and had to decide what to do with is, you know, this movie is going to say something about the identity of, of American culture and post-war culture, you know, by its very nature, because that's this is the, the turning point in sort of world history and American history, particularly. But do you do that? You know, he chose to do it writing the script in first person and having Killian Murphy serve as the, the surrogate for, you know, that that moral di- uh, dilemma, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. And. It's smart to anchor the film as a biopic because if you just spiral out a little too much after the dropping of the atomic bomb, you know it, it starts to get deep into the weeds. Even with just uh, with Strauss's hearing, uh, you know, confirmation hearing for. I think it's Secretary of Agriculture or something. Yeah, he's, like... he's getting a cabinet position, uh, and uh, yeah. So, and this is where that all comes out is him he, as a former leader of you know the Atomic um, Energy Commission, uh, right? Sort of. Uh, but you know, it, it could have spiraled out into like a million different things, but mm-hmm. instead, it keeps kind of inflecting back on on Oppenheimer, the titular figure, um, specifically in addressing some of the ideas. Is like, what does this man think? You know, mm-hmm. it's like a question that a million people have. Is like, what is his thought about 
what happened. He built the thing that changed the course of the world and and murdered so many people. Um, you know, what is he? What is his opinion on the dropping of the atomic bomb? Is like the million dollar question at the center of this of this whole thing. And like, what was his growth? What, what was his like, you know, journey to get to that? And the movie takes great pains to kind of show the good and the bad in that there's no easy answer in a lot of ways. Yeah, so, to that point, how did you feel about the placement of the Bhagavad Gita quote uh, in this movie and oh making the creative decision to have him say it mid-coitus with, with Florence Pugh? Like, mid-fuck with Florence Pugh is when they decided this is where that line belongs. I, I, <laughs> I think we were joking. We texted, like, you never just want to, like, read Sanskrit and nut at the same time. Jesus Christ. Uh, no, it, I... There I is, there, okay, so there is... Look, what we, do you we think? either it's definitely very goofy. Like yeah. for starters, it's just goofy. Yeah. It's funny, but I think and I've read other work, other critics that kind of say like you know Nolan's movies are pretty sexless, um, and that's just because there's such a primordial yeah. force to it, and he he doesn't do anything without taking it like super seriously. So even if he were to show sex, it would have to have like you know the most the, the highest gravitational pull of a theme that any mm-hmm. that it could ever have. And so I think that there's a lot of like uh, linkage that he's trying to create between sex and death, passion and inspiration. Um, and so linking all of these ideas together through the use of this like Sanskrit quote, that is like the thing that he is, the sentence he is most known for. Um, it's the most famous, yeah, quote associated with this entire you know period of history for this particular person too. I'll say this: he actually gives it context too. So when mm-hmm. he when he does, he kind of explains what's happening in the book when that he reads from when the quote happens. It's not just like he found a cool quote right. and said it yeah. out loud. Yeah, I mean, because that's it, what happened in real life too. Like, I mean, when he has that interview yeah. when he delivered the famous line, he talks about yeah. And um, but it's it's just goofy. Gotcha. Like yeah. there is some goofiness to it. But the the the, it, the, it, the it only just, other it just felt weird tonally to me. Yeah, I was like, well, that yeah. and the the scene where Einstein shows up out of nowhere behind a car. Yeah, <laughs> that I one love, we died laughing at. Yeah. I, I felt bad, but I couldn't stop laughing about it. Oppenheimer, I am become death, destroyer of that ass. <laughs> yeah, he's trying to make a link between sex, sex yeah. and death on a subatomic level, you know, yeah. but. but. But it also is very funny. Yeah, great movie though. I I'm gonna give it another couple of watches. I had the IMAX experience, but I'm gonna kind of like get a, a more easy watch, maybe at a standard definition screening um, here this week or something. There. Hey, it's Travis. Uh, we hope you guys are enjoying the episode. And if you guys have any suggestions for movies that you think we should watch or comments about the episodes, please email me at scarysundayscaries at gmail.com. Uh, we love hearing back from you guys, and we look forward to it. Thanks. Did you see this trailer for uh, Exorcist Believer? I did. Have you? Did you not know that? Did you know there was going to be an Exorcist movie coming out? I knew. I think when we talked about Halloween ends, um, we might have brought this up briefly that David Gordon Green I've, was going I've, to be the next person helming. Uh, this has been on my radar movie. for at least three or four years now. I since think I forgot. They, yeah. Since they started angling on the end of the Halloween trilogy that he started. Right. I knew that the next thing he was going to do was a uh, Exorcist movie. And then I've been watching Righteous Gemstones, and a lot of the stuff that David Gordon Green directs, like the episodes he directs, yeah. are so horror-y that I couldn't <laughs> help but laugh. I was like, oh, I've seen this style before. He did this in... 
Halloween Kills or Dude, you know, the Righteous Halloween Gemstones, ends. the new season. Uh, Tyler just brought this up in the in the Discord today too. That this this new season is back on track, man. I don't know. Season two was okay, but and like the it, but kind of pale in comparison to the first one. But this one introduces so many new elements and the it, it that show is such an interesting mishmash of directing power and behind the camera stuff too between Danny McBride, David Gordon Green, uh, Joe uh, Jody Hill, Joe uh, yeah, the uh, he also acts in it as that uh, I forget the name of the character in the show. Um, yeah, there are, there are like horror elements to this one, uh, to this there, season. They, I, I'm only I finished season two. We're starting season three now, mm-hmm. but there are so many like scenes that could feel overtly horror, and I just think it speaks to David Gordon Green's career mm-hmm. to have been the person who started out as like a indie like indie film darling, you know, this like almost uh, Terrence Malick acolyte and then become the guy who does Pineapple Express and then to turn around <laughs> and reboot Halloween to like pretty good acclaim, at least the first movie, and then to just kind of like keep spiraling his career. I mean, he also is the driving force behind uh, Rob McElhenney's show on Apple TV, um, uh, the video game television show, uh, Mythic Quest. You okay. know, he directs some of those episodes. So he's he's got his hands in a lot of different pies, and I love seeing an artist that stretches themselves. Like I right. I respect the guys that do what they do. Like Wes Anderson's always going to do what Wes Anderson does, but David Gordon Green is like trying, you know, making these weird new things. And all it takes is Danny McBride to call him and say, "I have one cool co- like comedy idea," <laughs> and he's probably on board. Yeah, or this where you know Jason Blum and Blumhouse are producing uh, a new right. Exorcist movie, and um, the risk has never been higher for Jason Blum, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, the riskiest movie movie I have ever made for sure is not out yet. This is a quote from uh, last year, uh, I think, in the wake of the new Conjuring movie being released. Um, he says back then he said it's The Exorcist just because it's so expensive. Usually the bar to success on everything we do because it's it's it's, it's inexpensive is incredibly low. For Exorcist, uh, it's high. It's not high. It's not high risk for Blumhouse um we've obviously already been paid but it's high risk for our partners and it's interesting that perspective on this being a larger production uh you know gamble I guess uh and looking at the trailer the first like even looking at like the YouTube comments on these trailers right it seems like people are automatically sort of tying it back to the original movies William Friedkin's um the first exorcist from 1973 and then the one that we covered right when that william peter blatty himself yeah uh, the exorcist 3 which we agreed way back then that we fucking love that movie that's one of my favorite movies of all time as far as these like you know demonic and possession movies go um but the i don't know there's something about i i like the expansion of the lore in this movie and i think it's an interesting choice to bring back you know um characters for this uh, I do feel I wonder if, if this is a little bit of, you know, the the requel syndrome that, you know, the Halloween franchise suffered from as well um, and that other franchises tried to emulate um, where, you know, having Laurie Strode come back, having Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, be the rehelm this franchise again is that, you know, it's the the trying to draw on the nostalgia fan service thing that the entire industry is sort of trying to capitalize on existing you know, intellectual property and, you know, recognizable characters. I'm, I'm hoping it's not that cynical in this movie, um, but it does seem like uh, Chris McNeil um, has a pretty significant role in, in this, the plot of this one. Well, and we do, there's some interesting context I want to add to this movie. Um, one, it releases uh, Friday the 13th in October. Yes. Of all days. And two, it's arguably one of the few movies whose release date will not change. Right. Yeah, um, it can't. It's because, locked in. Because, well, well, 
Not think, all. Wait, not all movies are locked because, in. Is it locked in because it's the Friday the Thirteenth? I think I thought that was just an opportunity they couldn't pass up for. Um. So so I'll walk you through this because this is like a whole thing I have to explain. Um. Uh. And for listeners, this all goes back to the strikes, the big S strikes. Right. Which we're gonna do a deep dive in. Uh, some other time when we have other professionals, people who are active. I was on the picket lines two days ago. But basically, because the actors can't uh, promote their movies, the high-dollar, high-budget movies, things with larger ensemble casts that need, you know, those those faces out front on The Tonight Show, on, you know, just doing those, like, interviews and talking, because they're not giving that kind of press attention to these movies... The uh, studios are so concerned that they're not going to make their box office gross that they are choosing to push back big movies. They've already chosen to push, um, I think it was Wonka and... I heard about that, yeah. <laughs> some other stuff. They're debating pushing Dune, which I think they'll do. I think they'll push Dune if they don't reach an agreement. The problem is, there's, there's, they should be... like The problem is that the actors should be doing their marketing right now. Like, all right. the Dune people should be gearing up for August and September to be heavy, heavy interview, heavy traveling around the world, heavy, you know, giving all this paid lip service to a movie they were in. And if they're not doing that now, then it's too late. Like, right. the marketing campaign started six months ago, whatever. And so it's it's already costing the studios too much. And they can't, they just, they the actors won't do it. The actors won't go out. Um, and promote these movies. And so the problem is now the studios have to push these things into 2024 and kind of futz with the dates. I think they're debating pushing the Marvels, you know, which would be mm-hmm. a kind of a wild thing is like you'd think Marvel would be a sure bet for box office, but because they don't have, you know, the star making, uh, qual- like they don't have Brie Larson to go around and kind of talk on, on camera about it. So these big, big movies are getting pushed, um, and it's it's interesting because it one it's going to make a lot of space for the Oscars. Um, that's why we're joking like Barbie's probably going to go up. Like Ryan Gosling from Barbie will be put up against like Robert Downey Jr. from Oppenheimer in the best supporting the best actor race. <laughs> yeah, because there will be, there there might be no other competition. Like it yeah. might be that and like the fucking Sound of Freedom. Um, oh my god! But but. The reason that I that we think The Exorcist is going to stay where it is is because of the hype off of the product and a lot less to do. It's a lot more to do with the actual right. The Exorcist than yeah. any one actor. Yeah, other and than... Horror fans are pretty good about, like, are pretty good acolytes of release dates. So mm-hmm. as long as they stake their tent on that hill and just decide to stick with it, there's a really good chance that, you know, they're still going to make their money back. But it, this is a dangerous game. I mean, Jason Blum is probably a little more scared than he was before is now that they don't have some of their talent being able to run around and, and give that kind of um, promotional material. You know, there's a big question mark on like, will this movie break into the upper atmosphere when it comes to people talking about it, people going to see it in excitement and hype? Or is this like a blip? Like, will there be no movies and then the exorcist and then no more movies again? Like what, what's going to happen with the strikes and with all this like box office momentum s- still coming to a halt, 
Which is fascinating because it only adds to the stakes of a, of a movie that they already perceived as being risky, right? Um, and that exactly. is interesting, the idea that, you know, Ellen Burstyn coming back as Chris McNeil, like we said, is the only recognizable, you know, actor really in there. I mean, Leslie Odom Jr. too, who, you know, can right. probably market on him. Um, but it, Those it's, two it is alone would yeah. probably make the marketing campaign for the movie, is they would be right. the ones doing all the, the interviews and stuff. But they're mm-hmm. not, I mean, Leslie Odom Jr., they're not names that bring... That just inherently bring people, and that's exactly. not a knock against them. It's just yeah. that it's just you know, that the film doesn't rely on them necessarily as you know, the, and the it, selling it, point. Interestingly enough, I mean, I don't think that like the the evil demon of the Exorcist is like the point of seeing the Exorcist in a lot of ways. You know, no, I mean that's something when we talked about in our episodes on the Exorcist three about uh, the first uh, Exorcist in nineteen seventy three. What you forget, I think, because the movie has aged you know so much, and that it. Um, it, it, it becomes the title of The Exorcist is, is a shorthand for the scariest movie ever made or one of the best horror movies ever made. You forget that the plot of that movie is largely Damien Karras dealing with, you know, dramatic existential crises about, you know, his his faith and his relationship with the church and other societal problems that are deeper that then are the backdrop for The Exorcism, which kind of takes place pretty late into the movie. Um, and it's interesting because this movie seems to be expanding that lore too and then also kind of trying to take a similar... Like the like the Exorcist three being like a crime thriller. Like the Exorcist three is a crime right. thriller pretty much throughout most of it. Um, and this one, it'll be interesting to see. It's the trailer is kind of the trailer is kind of retro, especially the end of it. Um, it starts cutting to those like still shots of black and white. Um, there's something almost like Blair Witchy about it. I, I kind of like that aesthetic. Um, and hopefully, if, if they're leaning into that, I think that's a good direction. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much. Uh much it relies on just like the 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 scariness of an exorcism Um, i don't i don't either this is going to be a a very tough like needle to thread for mm -hmm. blumhouse especially with the added risks that's going on all around um but the you know there's the alternate argument is that if a lot of movies get pushed it's not going to have to compete with dune is the exorcist might be might make the only money (laughs) because it's the only movie in town you know it's like it's one of the only things running I know. I mean, it's. I mean, we're gonna see it, and it's. I mean, what a cool like Friday the Thirteenth event too. Like that's gonna be. That's that's awesome. Go get right. a tattoo it, and see the Exorcist. Believe well, it. that's that. I mean, that's right. Like the Barbenheim of it all, making an event out of going to the movies right. might be the trick to getting the best box office gross possible. Yeah. Did you say like Gen Z goes when it's an event? When it's like yeah. a thing you had to do. Because it's viral at that point. It becomes like a, yeah, it becomes right. a, a cultural, like, you know, a challenge. If it's a TikTok so, challenge, it's, you, you know. know. Maybe the, <laughs> the true challenge for the marketing team of The Exorcist is how do we make this feel like an event that everybody mm-hmm. and their moms has to do? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, like it would have to be, how do you make this a TikTok challenge in some right. ways? Which is like sad to say it like that. Yeah. But it's definitely a good question. And one I having has said out loud will now be texting some of my marketing friends about <laughs> who also work in media. Like, what do you guys think about this? B-dubs, I'll accept my consulting fee right now uh, for, for whatever. Uh, but yeah, 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 yeah. It's funny you bring that up, though, because, yeah, the um, it, like I said, the first response is even if you read like the, the comments on YouTube or, you know, on Reddit or whatever of underneath the video for the trailer um people are yeah like i said constantly pulling back to the you know the original 1973 exorcist and the fact that like before that movie came out we didn't have the vocab like the the vocabulary of visual imagery that we now sort of indelibly associate with 
the Exorcist, right? Those the the scenes and the the, the costume design, the makeup, you know, the the, the way uh, an Exorcist movie is filmed started with that movie, and we didn't have it in our lexicon or it didn't exist in society before that. And so it's interesting, like this movie trying to like will can something like this have the same impact or have the same draw? Um, and unless it's you know, without you know doing something like that without being having some kind of cultural impact leading up to it as well. Um, I mean, the, um, the, the lesson every single time, in, and especially in Hollywood, is that, like, lightning in a bottle. They're yeah. like, it's impossible to capture lightning in a bottle. And you just don't know if you have lightning in a bottle or not until you release the movie and it either goes well or it doesn't. Like, they're hedging their bets as much as any person should. They're a company. They ought to make money. But at the end of the day, like, there's just no knowing what happens next. Yeah. And it, now more than ever, even when it comes to movies coming out, they're, it truly... We have no idea what happens next. Yeah. Yeah, the landscape has been changed. I don't know. Yeah. Um, what was the, like, what, can you think of a movie, I think we talked about this because I brought it up maybe uh, in Dawn of the Dead, but what is a movie you saw, a horror movie maybe, way too young? Um, shoot, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know the answer to that very well. I have, a, I, I have a weird answer to that that's not necessarily a horror movie, but something that, like, really scared me. Um, I saw, I saw The Brothers Grimm. It's, uh, Interesting. And, I think it was, like, 2003 or four. Yeah. Um, directed by Terry Gilliam, featuring Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, who play, <laughs> you know, The Brothers Grimm. Yeah. But they basically go around the German countryside and kind of, like, scam people out of money by pretending to be all the little ghosts and demons, you know, that they would write their, their stories about. And then they get caught up in this, like, conspiracy uh, by, I think, like, the French king to take over, like, the German countryside. And all of a sudden, all these monsters that they were just making up become real. Um, and there's this terrifying scene. I remember it as a child because I, I, it was the last time I ever, like, spent the night in my parents' bed, like, intentionally, like, got out of my own and went. As there's, like, this scene where, like, a disgusting-looking gingerbread man forms out of the, like... <laughs> the black mud surrounding a poisoned well and yeah. starts attacking like a young Heath Ledger and like kind of like in a high pitched voice kind of screaming at him, which is very Terry Gilliam, like could be very funny. But I remember watching that as a kid and being absolutely scarred. Christmas was never the same in the Papa's household. I truly, I, that was the last, that night I crawled into bed and the next morning my parents were like, what's up? Like you're, you're, you're not getting in bed anymore. Like you don't normally do this. What's in, what's going on? And I just didn't have the heart to tell him that a gingerbread man scared me. <laughs> it's the fucking, I know. It's the sugar. Uh, not the buttons. It was gross. It not was, the gumdrop buttons. I yeah. <laughs> I have since watched that movie again, and it's uh, it doesn't hit the same way because Terry Gilliam's just a really funny director. Yeah, that's fascinating. So yeah, I, everything the, he does has comedy to it. I don't know yeah. why. It was just weird. Yeah, the one that pops to my mind is, uh, yeah, I think I brought it up when we watched Dawn of the Dead, because I remember watching Dawn of the Dead at a slumber party and really having a rough time with that movie for a while, um, and just the imagery of zombies. Um, either that yeah. or weirdly, like, I don't know, man, like The Patriot or something, like seeing a, like a particularly violent movie when I wasn't sort of prepped for it. Um, there's some of those. But I, I bring that up because uh, there's this interview that, um, that uh, Angela uh, Melanson from Fangoria did with... Um, Justin Simeon, who is the director of the new Haunted Mansion uh, reboot that just opened this weekend alongside Not the Eddie Murphy one. Not the Eddie Murphy one, right. Um, Justin Simeon uh, notably has directed uh, uh, Dear White People. Um, He has a lot of other credits to him. He's a... 
he comes to do this requel, uh, and in this conversation with uh, Angel, uh, Angel Melanson talks about how there's something about having kids movies that are actually kind of scary, right? This idea of apparently this Haunted Mansion movie, which I guess I'm going to have to go see this weekend at some point, um, is actually like has some spookiness to it. And I think that's a really cool idea. They kind of lean into this idea of, you know, we kind of are in this era now that... Uh, is is an evolution beyond you know the 80s and 90s where um there was this sort of middle ground of movies that doesn't exist as much anymore of movies that um were were made for a wide audience but had some pretty like you know either garish or spooky or you know adult themes in them um and maybe there's been some sort of sanitizing by by hollywood to try to you know corner some Four, quad, four quadrant movies that are accessible by my children and by all audiences. Um, and he talks about like, and the idea behind, you know, making this movie is, is putting content in there that has uh, maturity to it and weight. And is also can be kind of scary. And that maybe that's a good thing for kids to experience is to, to watch a movie and then to have, you know, to, to be generally spooked, uh, genuinely spooked by something, um, which it, it excites me. I didn't realize that this, you know, there were going to be elements of that to this movie. Um, I'd yeah, heard about it, it coming out. In hindsight, I don't know if I ever really got into horror as a child, but mm-hmm. rather as like a college-age adult. When I, I remember going to see Cabin in the Woods in theaters on a whim and just being totally blown away and realizing mm-hmm. that I'd been like sleeping on an entire genre of cinema, but largely because you know it's not something that kids are allowed to watch. Right. Um, and so having those like gateway films definitely helps broaden the gap and like introduce new new fans but i'll say this too is honestly with the advent of the streaming services i mean there's just no controlling what kids are watching oh, yeah. so i you know i work at a pool i work with a bunch of teenagers um every single day and all of them have seen like some name drop like really spooky like truly scary horror films and they're only like any age from like 12 to 17 i'm like yeah. i the younger you are, the more I'm a little unnerved, but I also don't want to be like my parents. So I'm teenagers I'm scare laughing. me. Yeah, I don't know, man. They're they're terrifying creatures. Uh, but it is funny. I think we talked about this when we went to go see uh, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Right about the new generation, like uh, not even like Gen Z kids, but like like the Gen Alpha kids and like their relationship yeah. with horror um, as a genre or just like cinema and stuff. And the idea that like um, you know kids love eight like. A24 being the, uh, like, I remember when I was a kid discovering, like, the Criterion Collection for the first time and being like, oh, there's a curated list of really, really good movies that will, you know, that I can watch that are amazing already. And the idea that, you know, shorthand for kids being like, oh, it's an, I, I try to watch all the A24 movies or I watch, you know, all of those, which is, you know, even if it's like that, that sounds, you know, poppy or, or reductive or whatever it's 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 a cool way for young kids to be discovering movies if they they latch onto a particular you know studio and aesthetic or whatever that they that they well identify as our tour you know don't fault gen alpha it's not their fault they grew up in a world that was they literally grew up some of these kids are born after iron man came out right you know? yeah. like <laughs> there are 12 year olds there are kids that have not known a life without superhero movies. Why is time passing so quickly? What is going on here? Because that would have been, yeah, like fucking, that, that was 15 years ago. Holy shit. And so, yeah, there's yeah. 15 year olds who were born the I, same year that I I truly, it, it, the, the, what, the what they watch and how they watch are, yeah. are just, the paradigm is so different. And in a way that it's different from the, even the last, like, it's different from the last 30 years. Like, you know, movies, audiences, they go into their movie, they sit, they watch, and they come out, and then they figure it out. But, like, nowadays, the, the Gen Alpha, Gen Z, they're all... 
they're consuming media in so many different ways and and sometimes in such short ways that it's like it's hard man they i know kids that are like they'll i'll watch they're like i'll binge a tv show in a single day i'll watch you know seven eight hours but if i have to sit and watch an hour and a half long movie i can't do it yeah i know kids that say that and it drives me nuts because i'm like there's there should be no difference um but i i like you know it's just part of me getting old but also that like <laughs> damn like it's, it's an hour and a half this is a conversation i think we revisit we revisit a lot especially like in the discord and the conversation about like what what has long form television as a medium done to feature length films uh, like you know in altering the landscape of how we make stuff where it, it it is it does seem like the the feature the feature film has has been definitely cornered into its own sort of niche within the medium of film and tv making where long form television is just such a, a more you can just do so much more with a story when you're telling 10 hours of it versus 90 minutes but there's something about that you have to be a good writer to make a good 100 page script um for to have a story that begins and ends in, right in you know 100 minutes um, yeah so I think, it, it, I it's just tricky i don't know yeah. i think that like these kids they're so used to consuming at home especially these after the kids. pandemic these kids they are they're not my kids <laughs> I, know. I don't have yeah. kids I, I I love them to death, but they're yeah. just used to to shorter media. I like right. truly they are, and being able to control. I think, mm-hmm. you know, this is like a very off the cuff um, armchair psychologist thesis, but you know, I would argue they say that the Gen Alpha Gen Z are like some of the most anxious generation ever to have been born, um, and so there's so much about their world that is designed to make them feel like they have control. Right, like you can choose to click. Uh, to like something, to watch something, you can choose to to turn, put your phone down. You can choose uh, what shows you want to watch, how many shows you want to watch, what what you want to do with your friends. Hey, there's so much more choice in a lot of ways that that uh, Which the lack I- of control, but like having to sit and not be in control of something, like a movie for an hour and a half, is just inherently antithetical to so much of how they live their lives. That it would be like almost like like heresy to suggest to like not be able to pause the movie you know and conversely though i think it's also overwhelming right that is kind of the thing with streaming that we get now where it's even people of all generations like the the the, just the sheer volume of content that is constantly being created on a day-to-day basis um like the the choice peril paralysis right where there's an overwhelming amount of of stuff out there so it's how do you even begin to start deciding what to and these kids grew up in it i mean these kids have also not known a world without netflix you know like they haven't known a, a life without streaming the idea of like cable television is like is like a foreign language to so many of them um and and it's so funny because we laugh about like how spoiled they are they're like you know you're so lucky all your shows are in one place we used to have to like block out friday nights and schedule when we were gonna pee and wake up early on a saturday morning to catch it like you know the newest episode or something yeah 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 but these kids they love with all their hearts when they find something they love i mean they will die on that hill and it is amazing Mm -hmm. they're also the most like conscious consumers ever they're like always talking about the the moral uh, like the ethics behind the making of some of these things. There's so much, they're aware of so much that it like shocks me and, and excites me, but also like bums me out that they can't, you know, excise control for an hour and a half, two hours and sit and just enjoy even a, even a mediocre film. Like yeah. it, it, there's something about it being able to turn my brain off um, 
in a in such a consistent manner i don't know i yeah. that's, a, again, that's an old man's rant. yeah and again i think that is something that'll be interesting to revisit at some point too and maybe like dive deeper into is what the future of like the future film is going to be um and the idea that maybe this is actually a, is a good thing for the, the future film where it's like we have we created enough of a distinction between because there's the I, I think of like you know the book adaptations of the 2000s as the the sort of Frankenstein example of splitting the difference between long form television and uh, features, right? Where it's like, oh, you just have sequel after sequel after sequel of an ongoing story, but like your story doesn't end, which is kind of a bummer. Like a feature should begin and end in in the course of its runtime, um, rather than being sequeled out to death. And I think that's something interesting because maybe that's a positive effect that you know this new landscape of film and TV uh, TV you know creation will will have on the feature itself um i don't know it's yeah. interesting thoughts for but, maybe another episode yeah um, they they're uh they're young kids and they're getting into horror movies i mean speaking of a24 and horror i'm sure this movie is going to be right at the teenager's alley dude. it's coming out in the in the dead of summer there's like nothing else going on barbenheimer weekend is over so now there's a chance for it to breathe what am i talking about travis talk to me baby Talk to me. Talk to me, Goose. Talk to me, Goose. Uh, Tyler told me he's already seen it. He saw it yesterday. I'm going this evening. Uh, he said it's awesome, and it, but it is definitely. I think along those lines, you're right. I think it is. A, it's a. It's another Gen Z horror. Um, he referenced bodies, 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 and talking about it, but says that you know this is sort of. I look at it, man. It looks like it might be one of the scariest movies that came comes out this year. Honestly, um, between this, I don't know, Exorcist Believer and uh, you know, uh, Evil Dead. Uh, this it, it looks awesome. Oh, um, for I'm sure. Very for it, it's uh, uh it's it kind of feels like it hits that same uh, like little niche that like films like The Babadook hit, hit whereas like just spooky enough, just a high enough budget to have some like high level stunts and effects and, and some really top notch filmmaking from brand new voices in cinema. Yeah, did this premiere at Fantastic Fest last year? Is that what nope. I said? Uh, uh, you know it right? did not. A twenty four did not premiere this film at Fantastic Fest. If I, I and I was there for almost all of Fantastic Fest. Right. The horror film at that time that they really wanted to get their hands on um, was either going to be, I think it was they were hoping to get a surprise screening of Halloween Ends. Mm. Uh, but the alternative was the new Hellraiser. People really wanted to yeah. catch the new Hellraiser at Fantastic Fest, and which is funny did. now. Like talking about that now, how like the new Hellraiser just kind of got swept under the rug. Like we don't we don't really talk about it because it was just. Such I, a, I'm bummed. I love that such movie. A, I, I thought it was good. It was just kind of a. I mean, it 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 felt floppy to me. Uh, you want to see? You want to talk about going to see a movie at midnight at Fantastic Fest? I've done this a couple times, and. The only way, the best movies that play after midnight are the weird ones. Right. And so if you're going to see something that starts <laughs> around midnight, you, you better hope it's weird. Buckle in. Uh, so this premiered at Sundance this year. Okay. Yeah. That's where it was. Interesting. Yeah, no, but this we've awesome. known about it uh, yeah. for at least a couple months. Uh, I say because it's been in, plus. Yeah, it's been in the new. Like people have been talking about it. The preview screening, I guess, in Australia in Adelaide in 2022. So it's been around for a minute. Um, Australian filmmakers. Uh, yeah, this is this. Look, it, lo- it looks cool. Yeah, like just I'm you know b- based on the the logline and the premise, uh, I'm super excited to see it tonight. Um, it looks scary, and maybe we'll do just like a whole episode on this one. Uh, but I'm excited about it. I know uh, I am too. Cool. Well, we got some other stuff we can probably talk about next time. Um, we'll work <laughs> on it. Yeah, I know. We'll, we'll save that I, again. I know we want to talk about fucking. Uh, sound of freedom and shit when like maybe we'll get to that uh, eventually but uh I, I, I my goal is to try and go see that movie for free i like i'm like i know i don't want to pay for it i'm not gonna where, support 
how do I go see this to where somebody else has paid for my ticket? Because that's the whole point. But yeah. how do I go see this where someone else has I, paid for I my ticket? I want a bootleg version buy. of it. And I don't yeah. buy the next seat. You know, like, you know how they say pay it forward? I want it to stop. Like, I want to I want pay, it, backward. pay it forward to stop at me. <laughs> I want them to pay me to go see this movie. Yeah, I'm like the <laughs> asshole in the Starbucks line that gets the free coffee. And they're like, oh, do you want to buy the person behind you? And you're like, no. 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 I'm not doing I'm that. good. I'm not. I'm very that. good. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. Speaking of bootleg, the last thing I want to talk about was my, like, the one, also, the other element of my theater experience at Oppenheimer that I have to mention during one of the most climactic moments of that movie, during the scene, the Trinity test, the like the scene in the movie, there was a row right in front of us in this IMAX screen. This guy pulled out his phone, filmed the entire, for a minute and a half, filmed it as if his phone was going to capture the IMAX. Like, it's like, it's, it's already there, man. And you can see this on YouTube. Like, it's like your phone is not going <laughs> to. Yeah. Ah! That was that's the first time something like that has happened to me in a while, and it just I don't know it it, it kind yeah. of put me in a sour mood for the rest of the movie too. But there's yeah there's that larger like we're not very good at being in public anymore kind of thing yeah. that like people at concerts are really rude, people are like chatting through movies. I love it too because some of the subreddits will <sighs> yeah. post will repost tweets uh, or TikToks. This one woman wrote a TikTok that was essentially like. You know, if you won't let me talk in the movie, then I don't want, like, you shouldn't be in the movie theater. She was like, me and my friends are supposed to talk in the movies. That's what they're for. <laughs> it's... it was just like, how do you parse that out? Like, there's so much to process in, in that idea. But the entitlement of, like, I go to the movies and it's mine and I do what I want um, kind of feels... Like it feels to me like a little upsetting because like you're part of a group now. That's the like, whole point. That's the whole this whole battle we had. Identity. Yeah, the whole battle we had to keep the cinema alive and the idea that you know this is there's something about that. Like it's ah man, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. I don't know. Before we get too bummed out, uh, we can talk about more stuff like about that later. Do you want um, to hear my my funny anecdote? Just as a <laughs> yeah, wait, yeah. We saw Oppenheimer in seventy millimeter at nine thirty in the morning, and Mary Kate and I sat down and two, uh, very like mid-30s, lean, long, curly hair, actor-looking type dudes with, you know, like, the ripped jeans and, like, a baggy black t-shirt and an expensive watch sit down together. One of them has, like, a leather notebook. And the other one, I kid you not, is swirling whiskey in a plastic cup that he bought at the bar. <laughs> this is 9.30 I mean, in the morning. Hey, that if you're, that, I feel like... All of those elements come together to make a great Oppenheimer watching experience. That's it's actually like, how I would prefer that. Yes, yes, it's, that's what it's I want. Almost painful how much of a Nolan acolyte. You know what I mean? Like, it's, I, it, like they're a stereotype. They're a stereotype. I, I resisted the urge to light up a cigar. I mean, I don't know, man. Like, yeah, it, yeah, it's a vibe. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but hey, yeah, this is a uh, dead air. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, our episode on the audition will be coming up next. Uh, yeah, if you want to follow us on Instagram, uh, follow at Scary Sunday Scaries. Hey, this podcast also has a patreon um we got shirts now so those will be going up on patreon first for anybody who wants to grab one for less money than will be up on um other places uh so patreon.com slash scary sunday scaries go on there join it support us get early access to episodes hang out join our discord email me at scary sunday or scary sunday scaries at gmail.com um if you have any questions or want to join the discord or suggestions for movies or comments about you things that we were wrong about and stuff. Definitely <laughs> join the Discord. I there's no end of alternative opinions. The Discord is fun. It's it's the Wild West in there, man, and we just we, we roll with it. It's fun. Um, At least once a month, I like try to pull the pin on a grenade and throw it in there and see if it goes <laughs> off or not. No, and yeah, uh, we'll, maybe I, I don't want to have to be a moderator, and maybe I'll have to hire somebody else to do that. We'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> all right, hey, if you want to follow me, I'm at Trav the guy. 
I'm at BG underscore Pappas. Uh, listen to our next episode on the audition. And stay spooky. Have fun. Be safe. Bye. Love you. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Sunday Scaries.